Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Good morning, everyone. William Hemsworth here, and welcome to the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show here on the Four Persons Network. Great to be with you all this week. And man, what a fun week it's been. On a personal note, um, for those that don't know, um, I've had knee issues for several years. Uh, I blew my knee out the first time when I was 19. I'm 43 years old now. I've had five surgeries since, and I Praise God, I got word yesterday that the VA is going to do a knee replacement. So, praise God for that. It's something I've been hoping for, praying for, for several years, and here we are. But more importantly than that, had a lot of great feedback on last week's show. Um, and actually, a, uh, a non-Catholic a non-Catholic friend contacted me. He, he caught the show, and uh, yeah, he had some interesting words, all, all complimentary um, he said it put his perspective on what happens during mass in a whole new light, especially when given the evidence for it. So that, that was, that was great words of encouragement and great to hear that a non-Catholic, um, what they thought about the show. And so this week we're going to continue on with the Roman canon, you know, it's theology, apologetics, it's history, things of that nature. So last week we talked about, um, we talked about, you know, the invocation of the saints, including uh, our Blessed Mother in there. Uh, we talked about uh, Mary as Mother of God, how that's taught in the Roman canon. And just to reiterate, the Roman canon is sometimes most commonly known in the modern era as the as Eucharistic Prayer One. All right, so today we're going to get into uh, more of the nuts and bolts. We're going to get into the prayers of consecration and things of that nature. All right, so let's go ahead and dive in. Um, I'm just going to start off exactly where we left off last week. So if you want to, if you if you missed last week's show, go back into the archives of Burnt Toast and Coffee Show, check it out. But yeah, let's go ahead and let's continue here. So after praying for the Pope and the bishops. Um, those by name, by, by asking their name, asking for prayer from the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints, the Roman canon switches gears. So the prayers of, con- we go into the prayers of consecration. The prayers of consecration are made up of three parts because of the Trinity. A lot of people don't realize that. It's kind of a way of invoking the Trinity. So the prayer of consecration made up of three parts. Through the prayers of consecration, the miracle of transubstantiation will take place and the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ will be present on the altar under the appearance of bread and wine. Now, like I said before, a couple times already, the prayers of consecration have three parts. In the first part of the prayer, 
the priest asks God to accept not only his own service, but the service of the whole family of God. Part of the service, uh, the peace of God is requested, so all present may be delivered from damnation and brought to heaven. The priest then extends his hands over the gifts of bread and wine, which demonstrates that the Eucharist is indeed a sacrifice. All right, It is a representation of the perpetual sacrifice that was given for us all on Calvary. And it's that sacrifice that continues to mediate in the world. By placing his hands over the sacrifice on the altar, the priest brings to mind a lot of Old Testament symbolism. In the Old Testament, the animal was slaughtered on the Day of Atonement and blood was sprinkled over the altar. In the New Covenant, the blood on the altar is the transubstantiated wine that turns into the blood of our Lord. This imagery is a strong symbol that symbolizes our sin and wrongdoing and how we are redeemed by the shed blood of Christ. In short, this is the gospel in a nutshell, right? We're unable to get to heaven without the free gift that Christ gave us on the cross. The sacrifice that Christ gave of himself on the cross is perpetual and given for the atonement of all mankind. Now, what follows is arguably the most holy and sacred part of the Mass. It's the prayer of consecration itself. While holding his hands over the elements, the priest prays, quote, and for those that didn't join me last week, just keep in mind, I'm reading this from the Missal of 1960, uh, 1962, so the language is a little different. But if you go to the, the, newer, the Novus Order Missal, the language may be different. But the words mean the same thing. All right, but the priest says, Which oblation do thou, O, o God, vouchsafe in all things to make blessed, approved, and acceptable, that it may become for us the body and blood of thy most beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ? While saying this, the priest makes the sign of the cross, and the altar servers ring bells to signify the sacred miracle that has taken place on the altar. The bread and wine are no longer there but they are now the body and blood of Christ. Though the earthly matter may be visible, it has been transubstantiated to the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So from a theological and catechetical perspective, a proper understanding of what is happening at this juncture is vitally important. Now, Venerable Fulton Sheen once said that belief in what the church teaches hinges on what is believed about the Eucharist. The Roman canon is very clear about the change that is occurring on the altar, and it has everything to do with what Jesus said. Now, furthermore, the dogma of transubstantiation is not kind of a theological innovation like opponents of the church would lead one to believe. The early church fathers were adamant in teaching that the real presence of Christ is present in the Eucharist. Now, though it was not formally defined until the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the dogma is a natural progression of a fuller understanding of what occurs at the time of consecration. The priest then states very familiar words that were spoken by Christ himself. The priest gives narration of the events that occurred at the Last Supper while acting in the person of Christ. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that the priest is saying he's equal to Christ. That's not the case at all. And I mention that because some of our non-Catholic friends 
will actually go so far as to say this, these words of slander, okay? The priest is not saying he's equal to Christ. He's acting in the person of Christ, though, because he's saying the words of Christ, okay? Now, the priest recognizes that he is a man and humbles himself so that Christ can work through him. That's something that everyone should apply to our daily lives. We need to let Christ work through us. Now, by celebrating and using the words that Christ said, the priest is reminding us of the supreme offering that was given for our salvation. He's reminding us of the death of Christ and the horrific way that he was treated in those last hours and days. Now, more importantly, by partaking in his body and blood, we are reminded of his love and his promise to be with us until the end of time. After pronouncing the words of consecration, the priest kneels in humble adoration in recognition that simple bread has become the king of kings. Now, upon rising, he once again bows in adoration. This shows and teaches the faithful the profound reality of the sacrifice that has occurred. The priest, once again uttering the words of Christ, declares the new covenant in the blood of Christ by taking the chalice. It's made clear to all those listening that it is the blood of Christ that is shed for the remission of sins. The 1962 Missal explains in regard to this, quote, For this is the chalice of my blood, of the new and eternal testament, the mystery of faith, which shall be shed for you and for many unto the remission of sins. For those of us that maybe go to the Novus Ordo Mass like I do, it says, This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant which is shed for you and for all for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the words may be different, but it means the same thing. The symbolism of the chalice is one in which many are not informed, but that chalice itself has so much theological meaning. The chalice represents the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. The base of the chalice symbolizes Christ as the cornerstone of our faith. Everything that we are as Catholics is rooted in our faith, and our faith is in Christ. The stem of the chalice forms a straight line from where we are from where we are to the heavens above. So therefore the stem reminds us of the hope of heaven. Last but not least, the cup containing the precious blood represents charity. It was the ultimate charity of Christ that we can partake of his body and blood. It is through the strength of this Eucharist that we go forth in the charity to the world outside of the church walls. Now, immediately following the consecration, the priest reminds the faithful that the sacrifice is not only once and for all, but it continues through all time and for all people. This is done by reminding the faithful and himself that we are called to spread this message of redemption throughout the world. Here, the Roman canon reminds us of the Lord's passion, resurrection, and ascension. It reminds us of our own mortality and how this Eucharist is the bread of eternal life and the chalice of everlasting salvation. These precious gifts are given to us by Christ, and we are reminded of our obligation to spread this message to the world through the strength that these heavenly gifts give us. The Roman canon continues by the priest asking God to listen to the mediation of Christ for us. 
The canon does this by comparing Christ to his Old Testament types of Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek. So in typology, Old Testament figures find their fulfillment in Christ or in other New Testament realities. These three Old Testament figures had less perfect sacrifices, and yet they were accepted by God. The priest reminds us that Christ is a spotless and perfect victim with no stain of sin, but yet he died for our sins. So we bow in humility, because that is not only our role in front of the king, but it's a sign of gratitude for what he has done for us. So after the prayers of consecration, um, another point of Catholic theology is reiterated in the Roman canon. This point of the canon is another controversial part to our non-Catholic friends, and it's known as the commendation of the dead. The priest starts the prayer by saying, Be mindful, O Lord, of thy servants and handmaids who are gone before us with the sign of faith and sleep in the sleep of peace. The priest then asks that all those who died in Christ be granted refreshment and peace. The peace and refreshment are the hope of heaven, and these prayers are for those who are in purgatory. This part of the canon is known as the memento mori. And it reminds us to remember our own mortality by remembering those who went before us. This reminds the church militant, those of us who are on earth, to pray and unite their prayers with the priest for the church suffering. Church suffering is those in purgatory. By uniting with the priest and offering the sacrifice on the altar, those in purgatory can reap the fruits that the sacrifice of the Eucharist has for them. The poor souls may be temporarily deprived of the beatific vision, but they are still in communion with Christ and died in his friendship. The Roman canon reminds us in more ways than one that there is more than this life. It reminds us to put other needs, particularly the needs of others, particularly those in purgatory above our own. So in a very real way, it reminds us that we may we may be there before we get to heaven, and we should pray for those on earth as they pray for those in purgatory. Now, the ancient nature of the Roman canon is one of the evidences that purgatory was taught from the beginnings of the church. Praying for the dead was something that our Jewish ancestors did. And we see evidence for this in Second Maccabees 1245, which, of course, is in our Bibles, but not in the Bibles of our Protestant friends. But Second Maccabees 1245 says, quote, but if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin, end quote. Christ himself stated that a sin against the Holy Spirit is one that will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Even the Jewish Encyclopedia from 1906 has a fascinating entry on the subject of purgatory. Inciting quotations from Scripture, the Talmud, and the Midrash, it mirrors very closely to the Catholic point. Now, there are some contrasts, but the point remains that the ancient Jews believed in some type of a third state in which the soul is purified. This is what the Jewish Encyclopedia states. It says, quote, The righteous shall at once be written down for life everlasting, the wicked for Gehenna. But those whose virtues and sins counterbalance one another shall go down to Gehenna and float up and down until they rise purified. It's fascinating. Purgatory is the work of a merciful and loving God and not a second chance at heaven. 
those that are having their temporal effects of sin taken away until they are purified and able to enter the kingdom of heaven. The canon teaches us that one of the great joys of heaven will be meeting those who are in purgatory and those who are in heaven waiting for us. The Roman canon ends with another invocation of the saints. Now, though I mentioned this theology behind this previously, it's important to note that different saints are mentioned by name in this part of the prayer. The priest asks for us to be made worthy and be granted fellowship with the martyrs and apostles. So in this part of the prayer, the, the priest specifically mentions John, Stephen, Matthew, Barnabas, Ignatius, Alexander, Marcellinus, Peter, Felicity, Perpetua, Agatha, Lucy, Agnes, Cecilia, Anastasia, and all the saints. Now, though they are with Christ, again, they are very much alive, and we ask for their intercession as we go through this life. In asking them to share in their fellowship, the canon reminds us that we are to accept their call of spreading the gospel and their sufferings, even if those, that suffering results in martyrdom. The Roman canon concludes with what is known as the doxology and the minor elevation. This section is familiar to those who have never heard the Roman canon as it appears in all the other Eucharistic prayers, the body and blood of Christ, but now as high as before. Not as high as before. That's why it's called the minor elevation. He then asks Christ to bless the offering and to give them to us through him, and in him, and in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Though the prayer is short, it is a crucial part of the Roman canon, as it links and unifies the invocation of the Holy Spirit with the words of institution. Now, with the words of consecration and the prayers of the Roman canon complete, those at Mass are transported in a mystical way to a heavenly banquet. Though the reception of communion happens, a few prayers, although this happens a few um, after the Roman canon is complete, it's a vital form of it's vital from a theological and catechetical perspective. Okay, with Christ present in His Church, the Bridegroom has come for His bride. After the fraction rite and the commingling of the body and blood, uh, for those that know what I'm talking about, there's a point during the Roman canon where the consecrated host is broken, that's called the fraction rite, because it's being fractured. And the commingling is when a piece of the consecrated host is intermingled with the consecrated wine. So the body is intermingled with the blood. Okay? So it's this commingling of the body and blood. In this commingling, the priest tells those present to behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is the praise of the angels and those in heaven as seen in Revelation 19. So in Revelation 19.9, uh, the angel told St. John, quote, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Point in Mass, the priest is passing on this wedding announcement from heaven. Like a groom at a wedding, our Lord calls to us and wants to have an intimate relationship with his bride. He does this by giving himself, his own body and blood, as a way to show this eternal commitment to us. Like a bride, we process down towards our groom to be united with him. In the Eucharist, we are united with Christ, not only spiritually, but physically. 
being united with the flesh of Christ is the most personal thing that we'll ever, we'll ever be able to experience. The Old Testament book, Song of Songs, has a very vivid image between a man and wife, and it symbolizes the love that Christ has for his church. One passage that is particularly relevant to the wedding supper of the Lamb is Song of Songs 1-2, which states, Let him kiss me, kisses of his mouth. This is exactly what St. Ambrose says happens during the reception of the Eucharist. The second person of the Blessed Trinity has forgiven us of our sin and unites himself with us, with his very body. The wedding supper of the Lamb is a taste of the heavenly worship that we will experience in eternity and unites us with the church suffering and church triumphant in heavenly praise. Now, we've gone over the theology of the Roman canon. Now I want to dive into its history because this part's fascinating. The theology of the Roman canon is rich and contains key teachings of Catholic theology. Over the last couple of weeks, I've gone over them. Young people are leaving the church because they're not getting answers. And let's be honest, they just they simply don't understand what the church teaches. And that's our fault. They haven't been catechized properly. All right. This isn't to say that the church isn't clear in what it teaches, because the church is very clear. However, it's an issue of implementation. The Roman canon teaches the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, death, resurrection, purgatory, heaven, hell, forgiveness of sin, Mary as mother of God, and what the Eucharist is. These key doctrines have been passed down and reiterated at Mass through the canon. The faith was shared, taught, and spread throughout the known world at a very rapid pace. The history and development of the canon is also a story of catechesis, as some things were added or reordered for the benefit of the priest and the faithful. And so to understand its history, let's look at a let's take a brief look at the pre Christian era through Vatican II. So the pre Christian era. The Roman canon has early origins in the Jewish table prayers that were said at Passover. At the beginning of the meal, the presider would take a piece of bread and say a blessing or a baraka in Hebrew. The words used were very similar to what one would hear in Mass today and start off with the words, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has brought bread from heaven. This prayer of blessing is known as the Kedush and was a prayer where the presider consecrated the meal to the Lord. The piece of bread was then broken, then distributed to the family to use to eat various courses of the meal. There would be a reading called the Haggadah, which would retell the story of Exodus. There would then be a similar blessing over the cup of wine near the conclusion of the meal. This background is important because it lays the foundation for the Eucharistic prayer as we know it. The earliest Eucharistic prayers that we have access to and the, the current ones follow a similar pattern. In the Roman canon, the priest blesses the bread, details the life and death of Christ, and blesses the wine. Ancient Jewish prayers contained praise, thanksgiving, and supplication, and the Roman canon contains the same. In the time of Christ, the Passover was seen as preparation for the coming, for the, the coming future of the Messiah. 
in the Roman canon, we not only anticipate the second coming of Christ, but acknowledge him as present until that time comes. As our Jewish ancestors look to the Passover as pointing towards a future salvation, we do the same in the Eucharist by uniting with Christ and looking for our salvation. The Haggadah is a type of uh, exegesis that strives to elevate men to, to heaven and likewise bring heaven to earth. So this is a perfect description of what, of what the Roman canon accomplishes, and it shows its ancient roots. Now, it's not only logical that the development of the Roman canon proceeds from pre-Christian roots, but that it continues in the New Testament era. After all, it's, it is widely accepted and verified that the first Christians were practicing and devout practitioners of Judaism. Several passages of the New Testament show the very familiar words of institution that Christ used at the Last Supper. The earliest known words of consecration come from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-26. St. Paul tells the Corinthians that Christ, what Christ passed on to him, that the bread is his own body and the wine is his blood. Now, point in the church's history, the Eucharist had already been celebrated for about 25 years. Now, it is possible that an even earlier form of Eucharistic prayer existed and has been lost to history, but the origins of the Roman canon can be traced back to the New Testament era. This has led some to believe that it was possible that there may have been more than one prayer, uh, though the words of consecration were similar. As the Gospels were penned, the Eucharistic prayer underwent further development, and a uniform liturgy began to emerge. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain the Last Supper narratives. Now, John doesn't have this narrative, but the theology of the Eucharist can be found in the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6. The words of institution in the synoptics are similar, though there are subtle differences that don't affect the meaning at all. The three contain the key phrases of the literalness of his body and blood being present and given as food. Now, though not part of the New Testament, but likely written during the Apostolic Age, was this little writing known as the Didache. This pivotal work was one of the first catechisms that were used in the church, and as a result, it was, it was a critical component in the catechesis of the infant church. The Didache detailed procedures for baptism, church discipline, and prayers for the Eucharist. Now, these are just a sampling of the topics covered. And stay tuned, because in a few weeks, I'm going to do a whole series. We're going to go verse by verse through the Didache. It's going to be a lot of fun. But I want to focus on the Eucharist, since we're talking about the Roman canon. What's interesting is that the words of institution are absent from the Didache. Now, some may say that this is evidence that the early church did not believe in the real presence, but that's hardly the case. The words are ancient. And by the time the manual had been written, all right, these words of institution had already been written down by St. Paul, St. Mark, St. Matthew, and St. Luke. These writings had already been circulating around the known Christian world at this point, and the presiders of the masses understood that saying it was a non-negotiable. Now, what, it, what is seen is a further development of what would become known as the Roman canon. Now, there is instruction for specific prayers to be said about the unity of the church, and for it to be gathered together from throughout the world to be made one in Christ. 
One primitive portion of the Eucharistic prayer in the Didache is very familiar. That prayer states the following, quote, Remember, Lord, thy church, to deliver it from all evil, and make it perfect in thy love, and gather together in its holiness from the four winds to thy kingdom, which thou hast prepared for it. For thine is the power and the glory forever. This is almost identical to what the Roman canon states just prior to the minor elevation. Now, the early church, as seen in the Didache, believed that the gift of bread and wine was truly the body and blood of Christ. And through it, we have eternal life. Though the early church did see a development in what would become the Roman canon, the patristic era sought to completion. And the education that these heroes of the faith gained from it can't be understated. Saints such as Ambrose, Augustine, and John Chrysostom state things that can be traced to their knowledge of scripture and the Roman canon. This knowledge they shared with others. But it was through the development of the canon that the church gained a deeper understanding and appreciation for its theology. One of the most famous fathers of the early church was St. Ignatius of Antioch. His writings were full of imagery about the Eucharist that calls to mind the invocation of saints and unity that we share. On his way to martyrdom in Rome, he writes that the Eucharist is the true flesh of Christ that was given for our salvation. Though his words did not be explicitly, explicitly stated in the Roman canon, it shows an increased understanding. Not only that, but St. Ignatius is the first church father, with the possible exception of St. Clement, to offer prayer for the bishop and all the clergy. He was writing in approximately uh, one. Now, writing in approximately 110 A.D., uh, Saint Justin Martyr wrote a brief, a brief description of what an ancient mass looked like. The whole account can be read in his first apology to the emperor, in which he was addressing misconcept. <clears throat> My apologies, I can't seem to talk today. In which he was addressing misconceptions that the Roman Empire had about Christians. Justin, in his, in his own words, Justin sows a uh, development in the preparation of the Eucharist. For the first time, in for the first time outside of Scripture, there was quoted the words of Christ at the Last Supper, in which he said the bread and wine were his body and blood. Justin described how the priest takes bread and wine, mixed with water, and gives a prayer of thanksgiving to the God of the universe. Like the Roman canon, the three persons of the Trinity are praised. And Justin makes it clear that only those that assent and believe that the bread and wine are truly the flesh and blood of Christ may partake. This is what Justin writes, quote, likewise, have we been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. So the writings of Justin Martyr describe the beginning of the canon, the institution and reception of the Eucharist and a prayer for unity. Another important development in the history of the Roman canon <clears throat> excuse me, came with the writings of St. Irenaeus of Lyon. Now, for those who have listened to me on all of the shows, I talk a lot about his work against heresies. And this is where we are introduced to what is known as the epiclesis. The epiclesis is the point of the canon where the Holy Spirit is invoked and is the point after the consecration where the consecrated host and chalice are elevated towards heaven. St. Irenaeus saw the Eucharist 
as a fulfillment of Malachi 1.11, excuse me, which states, quote, for from the rising of the sun to its setting by, for its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This pure offering is one that is offered for all the people of the world. Regarding this, Irenaeus continues, quote, Our bodies, receiving the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, but have the hope of resurrection to eternal life. So, so far, it's pretty evident that there's a rapid development in what is contained with the Roman canon. <clears throat> in the Didache, there is a primitive type of uh, nucleus that is present, and it evolves and is elaborated on by subsequent theologians. Now, just because there was not anything written down, that does not mean that development ceased. Much of, we forget, we tend to forget this in our world, but much of the ancient world was illiterate, and oral tradition was still the preferred method of exchanging ideas and of catechizing. Development of the Roman canons made a giant leap forward with the work of St. Hippolytus of Rome. Now, though little is known about his life, with the exception of his martyrdom, he was one of the most prominent theologians of the 3rd century. Now, he's also known for a couple controversial stances during his life. He was the first anti-pope in history when he had a disagreement with Pope Zephyrinius over what Hippolytus thought was a modalistic stance on the Trinity uh, the details of this disagreement, we don't have to go into those here, but it is. But we just need to realize that Hippolytus was reconciled to the church, okay? He was, like I said, he was an important theologian. In his work titled Apostolic Tradition, we get a crucial glimpse into liturgy, the liturgy of the third century church at Rome. It's within these pages that we see a full version of a primitive edition of the Roman canon. Now, the, what I'm going to read is that prayer that's found in apostolic tradition, and it's quite lengthy so, lengthy, so bear with me. He writes, We give thanks to you, God, through your beloved child, Jesus Christ, whom, in the last times, you sent to us as Savior and Redeemer and Angel of your will, who is your inseparable word through whom you made all things, and who was well-pleasing to you. You sent him from heaven into the womb of a virgin, and he was conceived and made flesh in the womb and shown to be your son, born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin. He fulfilled your will and won for you a holy people, opening wide his hands when he suffered, that he might set free from suffering those who believed in you. When he was handed over to voluntary suffering in order to dissolve death and break the chains of the devil and harrow hell and illuminate the just and fix a boundary and manifest the resurrection, he took bread and giving thanks to you, he said, take, eat, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Likewise, with the cup saying, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Whenever you do this, you perform my commemoration. Remembering, therefore, his death and resurrection, we offer you bread and cup, giving thanks to you, because you have held us worthy to stand before you and minister to you as priest. And we ask that you should send your Holy Spirit on the presbytery of the Holy Church, gathering us into one. 
May you grant to all the saints who receive for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, for the confirmation of their faith and truth, that we may praise and glorify you through your child, Jesus Christ, through whom be glory and honor to you with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, both now and to the ages of the ages. Amen. Now, through this quote, like I said, it's a long quotation, but it serves quite a few purposes here. A more fully developed prayer of thanksgiving is present. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ are present. The words of institution are fully present, and there is an understanding that those who partake are one with Christ in his church. Though these components have been seen prior to this in different formats, there is something new being introduced here. This is the first time that the anaphora has appeared in an ancient text. In the Eastern Rite, this is when prayers were said for the emperor, bishop, and presbyters. In the Latin Rite, or the Western Church as it's sometimes known, the term would eventually become synonymous with all four Eucharistic prayers. But this is the first time we see prayers specifically for the leadership of the whole church. Now, though the exact year is not known, there were further developments to the Roman canon between the periods of St. Damasus and St. Leo the Great. These changes were done because they were vouched for and in a way petitioned for by St. Ambrose. The great saint who, this is the great saint who baptized St. Augustine. And he added what would become known as the memento of the dead. St. Ambrose wrote much about the sacraments in a book titled The Sacramentus. And in that work, he describes how the mystical body of Christ refers to much more than just the Eucharist. He makes the distinction between the three levels of the church and describes how in the Eucharist, we all become one in Christ. Like I said before, Praying for the dead has been a staple of Christianity since it was done in the catacombs in the beginning of the church. Here, the church formally adds it to the canon to show the unity that the three levels have in the Eucharist. And, though the, and through the Eucharist, we are united as one body in the mystical body of Christ. The Eucharist, though Christ pre- present with us, we, we, see it's, we see it as a promise of a future resurrection in Christ, and it depicts our unity. Now, those are some minor alterations. The work of St. Ambrose depicts the Roman canon in the near-complete form. However, in the early 400s, it was not uncommon to have variations in the Roman canon based on geographic location. In a letter to Decentius, Bishop of Gubbio, uh, Pope Innocent I more or less assumes the use of the teigatur and the memento of the living. Now, we could, it could be assumed by the letter that these two portions were absent from the Eucharistic prayer in the region. But Decentius had great admiration for the supremacy of Rome. He wanted to know the rules and customs of the Roman church. And as a result, as a result, this letter gives us a very important glimpse into liturgical history. The portion of the Roman canon known as the Hanc Igatur, H-A-N-C, was one of the last elements to be firmly established. Uh, This portion of the canon comes just prior to the words of consecration and begins with, We therefore beseech thee, O Lord, graciously to accept this oblation of our service. Now, for all intents and purposes, this appears to be a summary of what the priest has already said. And for that reason, this appears to be one of the sections in the canon that was allowed to vary by region, saint day, or even feast day. However, this changed in 538, when Pope Vigilius wrote a letter to Proferturus 
who was Bishop of Praga in Spain. Just a few years later, there would be one final change to the Roman canon. The result would be the only Eucharistic prayer, the result would be the only Eucharistic prayer used until the 1970 Missal allowed for the three other Eucharistic prayers that we use today. This change was done by Pope Gregory the Great in approximately 598. This change would involve the aforementioned Hank Igatur. Pope Gregory inserted a small passage that begs God for the remission of sins, to prefer, preserve those present from damnation, and to count those participating in the sacrifice among the elect. This version of the canon would replace what was printed in the Galatian sacramentary and was the accepted norm until the Second Vatican Council. Now, the Roman canon has served as a reminder to the faithful of the rich theology that the church holds. This is the high point of the Mass. So it served in teaching, and it, it taught the people vital parts of theology. So over the last couple of weeks, I've gone over some theological depth and its ability to teach the truths of the faith. And though it's hated by some, Vatican II did not change any of this. One of the main goals of the Council was to help the Church interact with the changing world around it. So the Roman canon received a slight update, but this was only in terms of an English update. So the Elizabethan uh, English was done away with for more modern terminology. So like I said, over the course of the last couple of weeks, I've used language from the 1962 version of the canon. The language is beautiful, but it is outdated. And when not said in Latin, it's kind of reading like old Elizabethan English. Beautiful, but may not be able to be understood by many of those in the pews, okay? So it's important to note that the Latin in the 1970 version of the Missal is identical to the 1962. So in a way, the church was attempting to get back to its roots, okay? In the early church, there were variations based on geographic location, and in a way that in, in a way that the Eucharistic, Eucharistic prayer was said, Vatican II allowed for implementation of three other Eucharistic prayers. These prayers are shorter, but they are beautiful and stem from the Roman canon. Roman canon is like the granddaddy, okay? Uh, there is still a prayer of thanksgiving, words of institution, prayers for the dead. There's still the elevation. All the elements that are present in the Roman canon appear in the newer options. In the Vatican II talk, document, uh, Sancro Sanctum Concilium, this is what's said about it. They should give thanks to God by offering the immaculate victim, not only through the hands of the priest, but also with him. They should learn also to offer themselves through Christ the mediator. Now, this is what the Roman canon reminded the faithful to do, and it's what the fathers of Vatican II were striving for. And this is what the Eucharistic prayers call us to do. Um, I'm going to get a little controversial here. Some like to blame Vatican II for the decline of mass attendance that has occurred and like to lay blame on the council for people leaving the faith. But when we read the documents of the council, they are orthodox. There may be some ambiguity here and there, but they are orthodox. To blame the council for the decline of mass attendance is to ignore the larger issue of society. According to Gallup, 75% of Catholics said that they attended mass on a weekly basis. That's an impressive figure. And this was prior to Vatican II. 
but there was already a steady decline before Vatican II started, and that unfortunately is continuing today. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to do something about it. All right, the same research shows that mass attendance declined by 8% between 1955 uh, through 1964, and Vatican II did not end until 1965. Now, I'm not saying this as a way to defend the implementation of the reforms, because it was horrific, poorly done, poorly executed. Um, but the new forms of the Eucharistic prayer set forth as a product of the Council are still an effective mode to transmit our theology and teaching of the Church. All right. There's no doubt that the Roman canon has a more storied history, and I love to hear it in Mass on those, t- on those rare occasions that it happens. But the same theological truths are carried forward in the new versions. The Gospels still contain the communion of saints and the real presence are still being conveyed. As in times past, the Church still states that the Eucharist is central to the faith. This is what the Catechism says in regard to this. The Eucharist is the heart and the summit of the Church's life. For in it, Christ associates his church and all her members with his sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, offered once for all on the cross to his Father. By this sacrifice, he pours out the graces of salvation on his body, which is the church. Those who teach must not be afraid to affirm the truth and teach what the church has taught. This can still be done. In today's day and age, and we need to get we need to do it. This is no time to sugarcoat things to the point in which there's no meaning in anything. So, everyone, I hope you have enjoyed this series on the Roman Canon. The Roman Canon, really, like I said, there's four Eucharistic prayers. Canon is by far my favorite, um, just because. I'm a theology nerd, and there's so much theology there. It's really deep. So I hope this helps you with your faith. I hope it helps you understand our history a little more. And tune in next week, guys. All right. God love you. Take care.